You're listening to the Winsight Podcast Network. Welcome to Menu Feed, a weekly podcast from restaurant business and food service director. I'm Pat Kobe, senior editor covering menu, chefs, food, and drink for both brands. I'm chatting with Eric Gabrinowitz, executive chef and VP of culinary for Tupelo Honey Southern Kitchen and Bar. Eric is a transplanted New Yorker who moved to Asheville, North Carolina to join the Polished Casual chain in 2016. At the time, it was called Tupelo Honey Cafe, but he was instrumental in refreshing the concept by elevating the menu while staying true to its southern roots and well-loved classics, like southern fried chicken and shrimp and grits. He added some of his own culinary touches, reinvigorated the bar program, and executed a menu lineup that worked as well in Indianapolis and Boise as it does in North Carolina and Georgia. Listen as Eric talks about his experiences working with Union Square Hospitality and running his own place, Restaurant North, how he learned not to tinker with favorites like Tupelo's mac and cheese, and how his menu innovation is powering the chain's growth across 17 states and counting. Welcome, Eric. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, well... Let's begin by you telling me a little bit about your culinary journey and how you landed at Tupelo Cafe. Well, now it's yeah. called Tupelo Honey Kitchen and bar, Southern Kitchen and Bar. So there you go. Tupelo Honey Southern Kitchen and Bar. Right. I know it, yeah, it used to be Tupelo Honey Cafe, but you can tell me all about that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, my culinary journey. Um, let's see. I started in the restaurant industry at about 13, 14 years old, um, in a, in a bar in Montgomery, New York, where I grew up, um, as a, a favor to a friend of my dad's who, uh, needed a hand washing dishes. And I worked every weekend since, and, um, I, I fell in love with the kitchen with knives and fire and, um, you know, a little bit of that rough edge of the, of the kitchen lifestyle. And as a, as a teenager, it was, uh, it was really, it was impactful and it was galvanizing and, uh, ended up learning how to turn that and creativity into something that I really enjoyed and really loved. Did you Uh, go to culinary school? I did. Um, I went to the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York. I went on the prospective student tour when I was 14 years old. Um, So I knew I knew from a young age that I wanted to do it. It was also in my backyard. I grew up about 40 minutes away from it and um, had been going there to dine for years. Um, so it was always something that was really cool to me. I always looked up to the chefs and whites and big chef hats. And, uh, um, so it was a, a very easy transition. And, uh, I just kind of lucked out that I had such wonderful access to what I think is still the best culinary school in the country. And so, yeah, and just kind of, uh, went there and, and I, I definitely, I leaned on some friendships along the way that really helped me out, um, when I was uh, just starting in culinary school the summer before I, I went to CIA, um, I had friends that uh, owned a farm in Montgomery, New York, and they went to the Union Square Green Market three days a week. That's how they made their living. And um, Sue Smith and Henry Smith at Sycamore Farm said to me, you know, come on down. Um, why don't you work for us for the summer three days a week? You know, we go in at three o'clock in the morning and we, we end at nine o'clock at night. And we'll introduce you to every chef that walks by. 
And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. That sounds great. I met Mario Batali and Wayne Nish and Michael Romano and um, Douglas Rodriguez and every chef who was at the pinnacle at that time. And sure enough, they had a relationship with every one of them. They introduced me to them all um, and ended up really getting to like and know Danny Meyer and Michael Romano and went to work for them um, immediately and ended up working for them for almost seven years. Wow. And then you uh, moved over to North right after that or yeah. something in between? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I worked at, uh, I worked for Danny for about from 2000 to say 2007. Um, and in 2007, I took the leap into uh, take my first executive chef job um, at a country club called Highlands Country Club in Garrison, New York. Mm-hmm. Um, worked there for a few years and then got a wonderful opportunity to team up with an, an old friend from Union Square Cafe and opened Restaurant North in Armonk, New York in 2010. And it was a favorite of me when I lived in Westchester. So it, it was really exemplary. Thank you. That's really kind. Now, as someone who grew up in New York, how did you become so obsessed with Southern food? Oh, uh, that was easy. Um, so when I was, I don't think I was even 21 yet at the time, I was working at Union Square Cafe um, and Danny Meyer was opening a new restaurant called Blue Smoke. Um, and Blue Smoke was touted as the first urban barbecue restaurant that was going to open. And um, the executive sous chef at the time, Kenny Callahan, was tabbed as the executive chef and tapped me on the shoulder one day and said, I need you. Please come with me. Like, you know, I, I, I need a couple of strong line cooks to come. Um, I was obviously flattered and ended up going and opening Blue Smoke. And the coolest part about it was just being galvanized by the amount of different takes on Southern cuisine and different takes on barbecue and how everybody thinks their opinion is right. Um, it was, it was a really cool thing. And I I got to taste a tremendous amount of barbecue and I I had never until that point seen passion in food, the way Southerners felt about it other than my Italian family. Right. So it was, it was very similar upbringing about how, how passionate people were about individual plates of food and individual cooking styles and methods and, um, so for me, I was just galvanized right away and, and kind of fell in love with Southern food and then couldn't get enough of it. Um, even when I went to work at other restaurants, I would always kind of, um, you know, take a trip down South to, to go barbecue hunting or, uh, learn how to make collards or, you know, that kind of thing. And so it was, it was really, you know, a New Yorker making Southern food isn't necessarily the, uh, <laughs> the, what you want to tell everybody, but I, I've been obsessed with Southern food since I was 20 years old. Right. And now you work in a Southern restaurant. So tell me about Tupelo Honey's menu and what it was like when you arrived, because the name did change from cafe to Southern kitchen and bar. So there must have been some transition in the menu as well. Sure. There's well, always transition when you're trying to, you know, be better and and be good and, and, and chase perfection. So when I got to Tupelo Honey, uh, I landed in here in 2016 um, and the menu was great, it, but it was, uh, it was simple Southern food. There was, there wasn't a tremendous amount of excitement, but really what we learned was that simple works and simple is what people come to us for, for comfort, uh, because Southern food is so comforting. And so we just learned to take little tweaks of technique and little tweaks of, uh, maybe ingredients that are, that are at the top of the trend, um, that will excite people and, and kind of filter them in. Um, and so we've we've tried to elevate elevate I'm sorry the um, the food and the beverage world, um, mm-hmm. and we kind of have this saying at Tupelo 
when after we after I came on board, it was like we want to be able to appease the southern grandmother and excite the foodie at the same time. And that's a lot harder to do than you think it is uh, because the Southern grandmother wants respect of tradition and they want respect of ingredients, respect of tradition, respect of the recipes. And the foodie wants to be excited with new and intriguing and fun. Um, and so we've, we've kind of hitched our horse to, to focusing on that. Um, and it's, it's done really well for us. And how many locations were there when you started there was we there was twelve when I started, um, and now we're at twenty two. Great! Wow! Yeah, yeah and, it's been a fun growth. Uh, yeah, and so it was it more casual a restaurant when you arrived, and now it's more yeah. polished, casual. You would say? Yeah, I would. I would say upscale, casual for sure. Mm-hmm. It was. It was definitely more casual. You know, the plateware was fiesta ware to a certain degree, and and it was just a little bit down home and 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 you know comfortable and comforting. Um, and we we kind of took it up a level by design. Um, at one point, we actually probably took it a little bit too far. We we flirted with fine dining at Tupelo Honey a little bit, um, mm. and just kind of learned from through our guests and uh, that that wasn't exactly what they were looking for. So we tamed that down a touch, and um, I think we found our sweet spot of of mm. where we love food to be. We can be as creative as we want to be as long as we respect tradition, um, and it's it's worked really well for us. Well, speaking of respecting tradition, how did you transform some of the restaurant's classics or some of their signatures with elevated touches? Can you well, like be specific? I can. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I learned some that you just can't touch, and I learned the hard way. Um, and then others, I learned that little tweaks that will be guest facing and and you know thinking them through ahead of time. So, for instance, <laughs> when I first got there, I decided I was going to change the mac and cheese. Uh, because I didn't necessarily love and appreciate and understand the style of mac and cheese that we did, which is still to this day now back to the original recipe. It, it's a baked mac and cheese. It's a little bit on the drier side, heavy on the cheese, but not as much sauce, not as creamy as I may have liked it in the past. And so I changed it and I did a very similar style to uh, maybe what we had done at Blue Smoke, which was creamy, um, not bechamel based, but like very cheese sauce. Um, brulee on top, wonderful. And man, to tell you it didn't translate would have <laughs> that is an understatement. There may have been revolt. We might have lost a few customers along the way. Um, I'm sorry if you're listening, um, but uh, but we quickly transitioned back. And it just taught me to to take classics with care. They're classics for a reason. They mean a lot to people for a reason. and and we've taken that approach. So before we've made a change, we have made a change with, incredible intent and incredible amount of research um, and and made sure everybody was on the same page. But there are recipes that I still haven't changed to this day. Our, our fried green tomatoes are exactly the way they were when I got here. Um, and there are a couple other dishes too. I haven't messed with the grits because mm. I believe them to be perfect. So why should I? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, so we've, you know, I've been able to respect through learning the hard way that there is a way and there is not a way, but yeah, it was, it's uh, it's been a fun ride. What about the fried chicken? Is that the same? Cause that's, I know that's something so, that is always. Uh, so the, the fried chicken is the same. I mean, we've made little um, additions to it along the way. Um, so we added a sweet and spicy sauce as an, as an option. And we've done a couple other things along the way, but the main honey dusted fried chicken 
is first off the best fried chicken I've ever had. Um, and I can say that because I've, I'm not the creator of the recipe, but we, we have a relentless approach at Tupelo. Whereas if we believe in something, if we want it to be, we are perfect. We, we don't stop until it's perfect. So um, before I came on board, um, in the transitionary period, they hired an outside chef consultant who literally spent a year just making fried chicken. Every dredge possible, every oil possible, every brine possible, every seasoning spice possible. It was, it was, I mean, literally 12 months of just nonstop eating fried chicken for that team and the leadership team. Um, but lucky for me, when I came on board, there wasn't much more to do with it. It was already awesome. Mm. Um, so, and, and I love it. Uh, you know, I, I, I would put our fried chicken up against any fried chicken in the country, if not in the world. I really, truly, honestly believe that it is the best piece of fried chicken I've ever had. Well, I wish I was there for that R&D. Uh, yeah, me too. I was I feel like I was gypped. <laughs> and also, as a New Yorker, I agree with you on the mac and cheese. And I used to go to Blue Smoke. It was like because it was really the only authentic barbecue place in New York. And it, and it was just, I know, I remember they put in a smoker in the back and they had to get special permission to do that because of the crazy New York city laws. And yep. It was, it was vented 31 stories up and that had already kind of uh, messed with the draw and the smoke flow in the barbecue. Um, yeah. So it was, it was a good six months to a year with, every barbecue expert we could find coming to figure out how to do it. But those pits were the size of Volkswagen buses. Wow. Um, and they actually had to crane them in and then build the building around it. It was uh, that was a special place. <laughs> well, back to Tupelo. Um, so what are some of the dishes that you introduced that, you know, have become guest favorites? And did any of them like reflect some of what you did at Blue Smoke or at Restaurant North? Um, so I think the most successful additions to the menu that we've had in the last few years have been our chicken waffle program. I'll call it for lack of a better term. Um, we, we decided to implement waffles, you know, chicken waffles, just such a wonderful favorite for brunch and for Southern food and, and everything. And, and we've had some creative fun with it. Um, and it is by far taking off and by far one of our top sellers, if not as a group, our biggest seller. And it has just become. You know, we, we took our learnings from that fried chicken R&D. We applied it to smaller pieces of chicken um, that could go into that. And then we had some fun with it. We do a dish, which is a mac and cheese stuffed waffle. Um, mm. And then we we take the chicken and we add a, a Nashville hot dust. So a play on Nashville and um, and just drizzle it with ranch and pickles. And it is just a wonderful, fun, absolute, you know, fat guy treat for lack of a better term. And it's so much fun. And, and so we take these wonderful things that we know we can execute well, and we still have the classic, um, which is chicken and waffles with syrup and butter, but then we just have some playful fun with it too. And, and I think, you know, I don't know that Trent North necessarily or blue smoke necessarily translates to that, except for the fact that just learning to not take yourself so seriously with food and have fun with it and understand the guests is wanting to have a great time and they're wanting to have fun while they're there. Um, and they want to smile when they get their food. And I, I think that that translates because that's kind of what I learned at, at North and Blue Smoke. Mm -hmm. And do you like, uh, I, I guess you work with a lot of uh, Southern farmers too, because that's kind of in your DNA too. Mm -hmm. So do you have a lot of seasonal dishes that you rotate onto the menu? 
We do a little bit of seasonal dishes for sure. And, and we rotate them when we can. It, it's harder as we're growing to kind of take that, that, um, hyper local approach, um, just from a sourcing standpoint. Um, that said, I think the thing that means the most to me, and one of the things that I thought about very hard when I left the independent one or two restaurant world to the, to the chain kind of, you know, quote unquote chain restaurant is the impact of our purchasing power means so much more now to the food system than it did when I was at North. Right. So I could, I could say at North that everything came within 60 miles and this and that and the other thing. And I don't necessarily believe I can say that now, but what I can say is that when we make the decision to change our chicken from commodity to antibiotic free and a good, healthy chicken for the, I'm taking millions of pounds out of the commodity sales market and turning it into a better product. Mm -hmm. Um, and that for me has been really the, the, the linchpin of, of, you know, impact in the food system that I used to have at North being, um, the hyper seasonal, hyper focused local one restaurant that it was. Right. How about on the seafood side? Do you use, um, I know like there's, there are different species down in the Mm -hmm. water. So are you, yeah. So all of our shrimp is American wild caught shrimp um, and any seafood that we have on our, on our menu, mahi included, um, we make sure it's MSC certified and we make sure it's not on the restricted list of um, the, leaving me right now. The Monterey, um, Monterey Bay, yes, <laughs> the Monterey, Monterey Bay Aquarium, um, their seafood watch list. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we're committed to that. And that is, you know, I think almost taking care of the oceans is more important than taking care of anything else right now. Um, so we feel really good about that. And we've, uh, you know, we definitely have had opportunities for cost cutting measures along the way where we could have chosen a lesser product that didn't mean something for the food system. But I'm really lucky that our leadership team, um, and myself all believe in taking care of our food system as best we can. And, um, and, you know, the MSC certifications and making sure we're using local products is when we can is, is really important to us. And aside from shrimp and grits, which I'm sure is a bestseller, um, what else do you have on the menu that's like seafood oriented? <laughs> uh, so we have a great grilled blackened mahi dish um, mm-hmm. that we actually, we take a compound butter with some Creole seasoning and a whole bunch of herbs. And then we also take uh pepperonata, which is kind of the Italian version of sofrito. It's garlic, mm-hmm. uh, peppers, onions. Then we cook that down with a little bit of white balsamic vinegar to make a a really like a base of flavor. And we layered that on top of the fish and kind of just melt it all together. Mm. And that is a wonderful seafood dish. I think actually that's it right now for seafood, if I'm not mistaken, Mm -hmm. but you know, our, our bread and butter is chicken. We, we take a a huge amount of pride in it and, Mm -hmm. uh, and it's done really well for us. And I also understand you changed up the beverage program to make it more on trend and profitable. So what was it like when you arrived and what have you done to change it up? So there's a there's a big balance between operational efficiencies um, and, you know, creative output. And uh, when I got here, we were focused on either one or the other and not together. Um, and so they had little bits and pieces of what we could do from an operational functioning standpoint, like, they had introduced um, uh, draft cocktails, but not really all that well, and a couple other things. And then at the same time, we had 25 touch drinks that took 10, 15 minutes to make and mm. smoked and did this and that. And, the other. and I think there's a balance uh, between, I mean, the guest wants some flair and they want some fun, but they also want to get their drink fast. 
Um, And they want to get it right and they want to get it fast. And so I think the biggest challenge for me was to marry those two things as best I could. And I I used a lot of my food knowledge um, ingredient wise to kind of play with the drinks along the way. And then I did the best thing I ever could have done. Um, and I can say this because she's sitting right next to me. I hired a really awesome beverage director who has a wonderful vision for beverage and has has taken the little things that I, as I had a food background, not necessarily a beverage background and, and kind of taken them one step further. Um, and so uh, I feel we're in a really wonderful place right now. Um, we're following trends incredibly closely. NA beverage is a huge part of our world now um, where I believe that to be the future. Um, I think the younger generations are drinking less. Um, they're drinking less and they're spending more. And so finding a way to balance out um, what they spend their money on and why and with a lot of functional sipping. And uh, yeah, the beverage program is definitely going in the right direction, if not going where I really wanted it to be since I got here. What are some of the um, you know signatures or the best sellers on the cocktail list? I mean, is are are people in the South more apt to order a cocktail than like wine with their dinner, or is it? Yes. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. It's definitely the case. So um, since we got here, beer and wine has been a declining segment um, mm. every year, year over year, and liquor and cocktails have just exploded. Oh, that's um, They oh, it's it's. You know, I could spit out specific numbers, but I don't want to bore you. I'll just say it's cocktails and liquor are tremendous. Um, and and at, at the same time, people want um, they want drinks that'll make them feel good about it, about drinking. Right. So um, lower alcohol cocktails have done really well for us. We've, mm. we've launched two different sangrias with seasonal ingredients um, that have become our number one sellers, mm. you know, right away. And And for me, that just speaks to someone that wants to have a few drinks and not feel bogged down in the morning. And so between the functional drinks that we're doing with the non-alcoholic, between the lower alcohol, lower ABV cocktails, and then listen, don't get me wrong. There's, we're still giving you all the big guys if you want them too, right? I'll drink a Manhattan at, at dinner um, or a martini or whatever. So just making sure we have that niche for every guest that wants to come to see us and make them all feel like they're at home because that that is southern hospitality so right um you know giving giving grace in in your menu choices is actually really incredibly important and are you open for lunch and dinner and brunch too like brunch? Yep, we're open for lunch and dinner uh lunch five days a week dinner seven days a week and brunch on saturdays and sundays brunch is a huge part of our business and mm-hmm. in our world um we have a wonderful mimosa program um which is done done really well for us. We have four at a time that we're offering um, and mega moses, which are 16 ounce glasses are super fun. And, and uh, you know, there's definitely opportunity to indulge if you want it. Um, but yeah, the, the amount of sparkling wine that we sell at Tupelo Honey and in all our Tupelo Honeys is, is staggering to me. Um, just add a little juice and it's, it's awesome. Yeah, that's great. It's, I'm sure it has really good margins as well. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't hurt, you know. <laughs> right. So um, what are the Tupelo's growth plans and how do you think the menu and the drink program is helping to power that growth? Well, um, we have very high expectations for our growth. A numerous number of restaurants in the next few years. Um, you know, we, we've already opened two this year. We have one more on the books. And then we have multiple next year and the year after and the year after um, we're in it. We're in it for the long haul. And, and 
we love that our guests love us and we love that there's opportunity for growth there. And so for us, it's the sky's the limit. Um, we have pretty, pretty lofty plans and, uh, and, and hopefully, hopefully we can execute on them. Um, yeah, I think, I think the menu and the cocktail menu and how it plays into our future growth is, is really simply, you know, pleasing the guest and being responsible to the bottom line at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, you mentioned the margins on mimosas. Yeah, they're good. But as long as I'm giving them to the guest at a price point that they're comfortable with and they're happy with, the margins are still good at the end of the day. And that that's your recipe for growth and success. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's kind of, you know, how how we've approached the food menu as well. Are you concentrating growth in the um, southeast or is it further afield than that? <laughs> Uh, it's further afield than that. Um, so we have locations now all the way to Boise, Idaho, to the oh, west, yeah. and and all the way to Washington D.C. to the east. Mm-hmm. Um, we found a tremendous amount of success in markets where um, there isn't an influx of southern food. Don't get me wrong; we're still opening in the southeast, um, and in our bread and butter in the south, we're still looking at other locations in in Texas, which we just opened one uh, two months ago. Um, but you know. Uh, We've had tremendous success in markets like Grand Rapids, Michigan and Columbus, Ohio, Milwaukee, um, where there isn't an influx of Southern food. Um, and so they, they they come to us for that specialty that they can't get all the time. And um, we're always top of mind because of it. So the Midwest has been great to us. And we have a lot of other expansion plans outside of the Midwest and the Southeast. Cool. So tell me about some of the outside work you do, like you advocate for childhood hunger and school nutrition reform and mm-hmm. other causes that are close to the industry. So what are some of those? So I've had the, the great opportunity and pleasure to work with a couple of great organizations. One is uh, No Kid Hungry, uh, Share Our Strength, um, and one is Wellness in the Schools, and another one is um, Chefs for Kids Cancer or Cookies for Kids Cancer. And so those three organizations have really given me a great opportunity to participate in um, everything from lobbying to Congress on on Capitol Hill multiple times to really kind of um, helping in our local community with with our school systems and our school food. Um, I did a lot of that in New York before I left, and it's kind of transitioned down here. And and I'll say this, our, our leadership team at Tuglohani is always willing to give back in any way. So they, they've always supported me. They've always wanted me to push that envelope even further. Um, and it's, it's been a really wonderful thing. We've also worked with, um, world central kitchen a little bit with Jose mm-hmm. Andres. Um, when, when Jose was just starting with world central kitchen, there was, um, I forget the hurricane that hit, but it was in Houston a few years ago, within 24 hours, we had a full 18 wheeler full of food with, um, on its way down to, to Houston to help Jose. And, um, it's been, it's we we work in I work in an organization that knows its roots, knows where it comes from, and is always willing to give back. And and that is so powerful um, for so many reasons. Um, you know, we we say it all the time. Like a lot of our cooks and a lot of our almost two thousand employees don't always have a voice, uh, don't always have the ability to push or send that eighteen wheeler full of food to Houston. Um, and so we do it on their behalf because we know. We know that the people we hire are wonderful people and 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 um, to give them a voice like that is is really important to us. So yeah, I'm 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 always trying to do better for the world, um, as is the the team here at Tuglohani, because if you don't have that, what do you have? You know? Yeah, no, that's awesome. 
And as we move into the second half of 2023, what are you most looking forward to both personally and professionally in the months ahead? <laughs> personally and professionally in the months ahead. Um, so I'm, I've been diving into nutrition a lot lately, um, how that plays into our guest, how that plays into our food and how it's viewed. Um, as we hit 20 restaurants, we're uh, now uh, going to be legally obligated to put calorie counts on the menus. And oh. some of that is pretty, some of that is pretty eye-opening. And so really from a, a personal and professional level, I'm really been over-researching and, and trying to kind of diving into um, how that plays into decision-making when you talk about food and, and, uh, and sustenance. And um, we've done a lot of great work behind the scenes to maybe cut a few calories here or there to, to make our guests feel better about their choices, but also understanding that, you know, we are an indulgent brand. Southern mm -hmm. food is indulgent. Um, and so having kind of a balance of both of those things has been, um, it's been a, a fun, fun exercise and a, a great, great amount of research. And personally, I don't know, I, I have an 11 year old and a, a nine year old next month. And um, for me, it's just been, I've been celebrating the amount of time I get to spend with them in a wonderful place that I live. So I live in Asheville, North Carolina, and it never gets above 85 degrees and never gets below 30. And I come in from New York. It, that makes me pretty happy. Um, I don't blame you. <laughs> yeah. So we're, uh, we're just enjoying the moment and, and enjoy my family and enjoy my friends and um, enjoy the food. Thanks so much, Eric. I'm a huge fried chicken fan. And now Tupelo Southern Kitchen and Bar is definitely on my bucket list. You can download this episode of Menu Feed and past podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Pat Kobe. Mm -hmm.